This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. Welcome back. I'm Matt Jones. And today on the Passive Real Estate Podcast, I welcome Taylor Lote. Taylor is a multifamily and self-storage real estate investor who since 2016 has acquired, partnered on, or had a hand in over $250 million in commercial real estate acquisitions. He hosts the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, where he teaches listeners how to escape Wall Street and build wealth on Main Street. Welcome, Taylor. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. And what else would you like the audience to know about yourself? Let's see. I'm based in Richmond, Virginia, married to an awesome lady named Sandra. I train Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And as my bio indicates, I love investing in real estate. Well, fantastic. I do as well. So I'm glad we're able to connect. Uh, how did you get started with real estate investing? So I started in real estate investing as a passive investor. And my path in uh, through that way, it was really intended to get me onto the active side. And it came as a result of my having invested in Wall Street assets, if you will, for a few years. Actually, the first book on investing and wealth building that I read is on my shelf over here. I know your listeners can't see, but The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham talks a lot about publicly traded securities and everything. And I got a big boy job out of college and had a few nickels to rub together. So I started investing in Wall Street securities, and I did pretty well at that time. Lived a very frugal life and built up a nest egg. But I had some misgivings with where I could see that taking me in terms of my wealth creation, but also my passive income that I would earn from those investments. And around that time where I was feeling uncomfortable about where I was headed, I happen to read another book that's over my shoulder, although a different copy, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And for anybody out there who's read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know the deal. I went through the whole thing like everybody else. Man, I need to get into real estate investing. Spent a few years getting educated, met sponsors, and you know had some money saved up and started passively investing in, in real estate with the eye of getting onto the active side. That was back in 2016. Fantastic. Yeah, Rich Dad is certainly a, a game changer with your knowledge. It, uh, everybody I know, including myself who's read it, you can talk about your life before you've read it to after. It's uh, kind of, You pivot and you're like, whoa, there's a whole other world out there I wish I knew about before, but now I know about it, so I got to do it. And uh, currently, do you invest passively or actively or a bit of both? I do both. Okay. Uh, tell me about your uh, passive real estate investments that you have going on. So... Over the years of being, you know, active in the real estate space, you can build up a pretty healthy network of sponsors. And that ranges in terms of their experience and quality and everything like that and their reputations as well. And today, my passive investing is mainly focused in uh, self-storage, at least opportunities that I wouldn't have had access to Otherwise, I do some active investing in self-storage as well, uh, but I've just got some self-storage uh, folks that I really like to invest with, so uh, trust them with my money. What do you like about self-storage right now? So there are a few things. Self-storage is generally considered a business of transition, which means that people need to use it in times of their lives when they're in transitions both in terms of up and down. So up if they're getting, say, a promotion and moving somewhere or buying a new house, 
they need to rent some self-storage to put their stuff in as they relocate into their you know new house in a new city or their new house in the same city. So there's a positive demand dynamic there when the economy is doing well. On the downside, when the economy is not doing well and people need to downsize and maybe move from a house to an apartment and generally less square footage, they need to save some money. Well, we Americans, we really like our stuff. Now, personally, if I was faced with that unfortunate situation, I would get rid of some stuff. But statistically, most people would prefer to keep their stuff, put it in a self-storage unit that they have to pay for as they downgrade their lifestyle as a result of downward economic conditions. So I love that. I love how self-storage behaves in up and down economic uh, markets. But you know, also throughout the pandemic, there was obviously the eviction moratorium that a lot of us were uh, affected by to different degrees, depends where you invested and what you invested in and everything as far as multifamily goes. But just the difference between eviction laws and lien laws, which self-storage is governed by lien laws rather than landlord-tenant laws. And I also just see an enormous amount of opportunity in the self-storage market generally. It's a very frag fragmented market where there are only a handful of really big players that own a lot of facilities in certain markets. But for the most part, a an overwhelming majority of the self-storage assets out there are owned by essentially mom and pop investors who aren't maximizing the value of their properties because that's not their priority. Their priority is generally retirement income because they bought it years ago, cash flows well, maybe it's paid off and they're just, you know, again, retired. Well, that represents opportunity for us as investors. When those folks are ready to sell, there is, or there can be value add potential in those facilities and we can, you know, buy the properties off of them, fix them up and sell them within a few years for a nice profit. And when you're looking at, you know, potential deals to invest in, how can you tell if one particular deal is good? And I know it's really market dependent. Some markets are overbuilt and some are not so, uh, you know, overbuilt. So when you're looking at deals, how can you tell if one is, you know, going to be good for your money to go into? So you're hundred percent right about, uh, talking about the supply and demand in the market, whether it's the overall market or the local area of any given facility that you're looking at generally, one, three, and five mile drive radii, or you can look at drive time. So demand and supply, very important, but even stepping back from a deal itself, you know, this is kind of a, a broken record thing that we say as real estate investors, but we're really betting on the jockey more than we are the horse. And for me, the knowledge of an operator, their experience, their business systems, all of those things are as important as, if not slightly more important than the deal itself. So I personally look at operators first and then look at the individual deal. I think one of the mistakes that new passive investors can make is first focusing too much on just the final return projection, just shopping based on IRR or equity multiple or cash on cash returns. Well, those numbers that you see in a presentation for investors 
those are just numbers on a page. They're numbers on an Excel spreadsheet somewhere. If the sponsor does not have the experience to properly inform the numbers that go into that underwriting spreadsheet with, you know, what is their actual business plan? Can it be executed? Is it reasonable? They don't have that experience, then those numbers are just vapor, right? And sometimes I've found not just in self-storage, but in a lot of asset classes, the most experienced sponsors who, you know, I like to do business with tend to under-promise and over-deliver. They tend to have more conservative underwriting, and that can sometimes lead to lower projected overall returns, but that's because they would rather lean to, again, under-promise and over-deliver rather than over-promise and under-deliver, right, given the, the choice. So, you know, don't shop too much on that final projection number. Look at the business plan, the team, and everything like that much more carefully. I absolutely agree. The jockey matters more than the horse itself. You know, somebody's track record is a good indicator of what their future performance will be. Of course, nothing's guaranteed. Uh, even the best operators might have a deal here and there that doesn't do totally. well, but mm -hmm. uh, it's a good indicator. So how how can you tell what a you know, particular sponsor's track record is? Like, how do you research that? So this is interesting. So there are a few ways to go about it. My opinion is that one of the best ways is to get out there and network, talk to people, find people who have passively invested with or done business with that sponsor in the past and get their candid opinion off the record, you know, not on a podcast, but talk to them one-on-one -on -one if you can and learn how it went, what mistakes were made because, you know, even the best teams can make mistakes sometimes, but how do they respond to those issues and aggressive investors and things along those lines? One of the big things to look out for is that in the multifamily space, primarily, it happened a little bit in other asset classes, but multifamily had the most new entrants into the market, is there were a lot of, I hate to say gurus, but that is the word that comes to mind, selling training programs, which there's nothing wrong with that. I've invested in plenty of those in the past. But along with those training programs or coaching programs, you get to put the guru's name, face, and bio on your slide deck to investors and say, hey, so-and-so is involved with this deal. Look at how much experience we have. Truth is that only that guy has experience. The rest of us on the deal don't have any experience. And then in reality, when, when and if things turn south, that guru person is not really involved and they're not going to come to the table with capital. They're not really going to help in terms of turning the deal around. And, you know, I've seen this happen, you know, so that's one of the things to look out for is if they're presenting themselves as experienced, is it really, you know, a couple of guys who have never done one of these deals before, plus a, you know, person that they recently paid 25 to $50,000 to put his face and name and bio on their slide deck, or do they really all have experience in the space? They're all dedicated to the deal. They all have skin in the game, checking all those boxes. And really, you know, again, like I said, going back to having skin in the game, being dedicated rather than just, um, you know, having one person that actually has experience acting as a, you know, marketing piece, if you will. And that happens quite a lot. 
Yeah, I've seen that as well. I mean, I, I would say there's a difference between if you're investing with a team that has like one new person, but the rest of the crew is solid and, and experienced versus oh, yeah. what you were talking about of everybody's new except for this one person that's more of an advisor, you know, peripheral kind of role and not really directly involved with the day-to-day oversight of how the deal is going. And so you're it's more of a gamble uh, for your capital if you invest with that kind of situation. I certainly think so. And those new guys might not have personal balance sheets to come to bring capital to the table. If things go south, they might be leaning on risk capital partners to front, you know, earnest money and, you know, things along those lines. So, you know, just watch out for it and really dig into whether these folks are experienced or if they're just kind of faking it. Yeah. And I have seen a lot more capital calls as of late, uh, you know, with different kinds of deals, but, uh, you know, there are those, sponsors who do have what you're talking about, the the capital reserves themselves that they're able to put into the deal to prevent uh, from having to do a capital call with their investors, uh, at least to make the deal work out uh, through these trying times. So with uh, self-storage, I'm curious, what kind of returns have you been seeing with your passive investments there? So I want to be super careful. Sure. I want to say too much, right? In a public forum about how well deals are going. Um, I'm more careful about that than others. But let's see, I'll give an example. Uh, I'm in a deal that we bought in, I think it was mid 2019. So just pre-COVID. And that is going to be selling here later in Q3, if not a little bit into Q4. It all kind of depends when it closes, but pretty soon. And that's been cash flowing 8% most of the time. Um, I think we maybe had a month or two there where it dipped down below uh, the 8% a little bit, but went right back up. It was a refi last year, I believe. And we got about half of our capital back, maybe a little bit more than that. And um, still have equity in the deal. And then as the deal sells, we're going to get back out a little more than 2x of our original investments. So that's that, plus the 8% cash flow, plus uh, the refi. Part of the property was sold in there too. So that that was part of the return of capital to investors. So to me, you know, pretty awesome deal. I'll take that deal any day. And that was something I passively invested in with a, a group that um, I built a relationship with and they were new-ish to self-storage at the time, um, but they had strong people in place, thought they had very good minds as far as their ability to build teams and systems and evaluate deals. And they were not new to real estate investing generally. They had track records prior to that. If I was faced with the same situation today, I'm honest, I honestly wonder whether I would make the same decision, especially in today's market. It would probably depend. Um, you know, the deal's gone very well. Again, I, our return is not because the market has just, you know, exploded. Although that's certainly part of it, right? The cap rates are lower today than they were in 2019. Um, but yeah, very pleased with how that went and, you know, shopping for opportunities to redeploy the capital when I have it back. Excellent. And then as for your active side, where you're one of the sponsors on uh, some of these deals, uh, what does your portfolio currently look like? Let's see. So we do multifamily deals in Dallas, Houston, 
certain parts of Florida, like outside of Tampa and in mid Michigan actually has been pretty good to us. And my focus in that way in multifamily is B2B plus class multifamily deals. When I first started investing in the space, going way back to what we started talking about at the beginning of the call here, my first passive investment and my first active investments were in C-class multifamily, older properties, generally lower income tenant base, lower potential upside. But it's not only those things that are the issues, it's since COVID and all the price appreciation and everything, the spreads between C, B, and A multifamily uh, properties in terms of their cost has narrowed. So C-class properties, older properties used to be comparatively cheap and you could bring capital to the table for capital expenditure items. And it wasn't that big of a deal because you got the property at such a cheap basis and it was just, you know, you're going to have skeletons in the closet that you have to fix up. Well, I found, in my opinion, that the price appreciation plus the risk of older properties and just the stuff you're going to find, the plumbing issues you're going to have that can be incredibly expensive that you kind of can't see in due diligence. It depends. They're, they can be really hard to catch and they can just pop up with older properties. That really pushed me into B to B plus class. Newer, not brand new, you know, 80s, 90s, a little bit into the 2000s, early 2000s. Uh, properties that are just in better physical shape, have more potential upside in terms of how high you can push the rents and fix them up and everything compared to C-class. I don't go all the way up to A-class because, you know, in my mind, in a down market, a down cycle, uh, A-class will probably be hit in terms of rents first and folks will move from A-class to B-class and on down. Uh, but yeah main focus on uh, B-class multifamily. Excellent. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, even like C and you know D, those are really harder during a downturn. And I don't know if we're heading into a recession or not. Personally, I thought we'd already be in one. So I'm surprised <laughs> that we're not, but, but, or maybe it'll be a soft lady. I don't know. We'll see. It's hard to predict, but um, yeah, the, the B-class is, is good uh, as well as, uh, especially self-storage as you're talking about is even more uh, recession resistant if we get to that point. So um, tell me about your, your the partners on your team uh, on the active side. So my role in deals is helping teams raise capital. So working with experienced operators in these markets and vetting them, building relationships with them, and then ultimately bringing our investors to the table in their deals. And for me, it you know, if I'm presenting a deal to my investors, I really need to believe in the deal. I need to believe in the team, the property, the business plan, the market, everything around it, because you know ultimately, I believe the performance of these deals reflects on me, even though once it's all said and done, I'm not personally sitting in the driver's seat. Now, I'm along for the ride throughout the entire time, right, with my investors, but um, you know, we... I think as people who are either operators or capital raisers or however you participate in this business, I think we can be too tempted 
to aim for things like home runs or even as passive investors. We we get tempted to look for the one killer deal that's going to put us in the financial position where we need to be. But when it comes to generating wealth, we just need to hit base hits over and over again, preserve our wealth, continue to grow it, avoid the down cycles, you know, rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, refer to rule number one. <laughs> and to me, those things boil down to the right people in the right place, the right debt for the deal. That's really why people are getting in trouble today. You're not hearing about it publicly so much. There's a little bit out there, but most of the distress, especially in multifamily today, is happening behind closed doors, and it's happening because interest rates went up so much and debt costs went up. It's not because we're in a recession and people aren't paying rents. Rents are falling a bit in some areas, but it's not a precipitous drop. It's a you know, to me, it's a almost seasonal downtrend that I think will probably turn back around. So, you know, focusing on mitigating the risks of things like debt and not hoping that rates will be back at, you know, the federal funds rate 0% in mid 2024 once again, because I don't think that's going to happen, but I do hear people kind of hoping for that quite a lot uh, behind you know, closed doors and uh, private conversations. And that's a bit concerning to me. So, I mean, that's a bit about my philosophy of, you know, the right teams and the right deals and debt and everything like that. And how can a passive investor determine whether or not you and your team are a good match for what they're looking for to invest their capital with? So first, I believe that starts with, for the passive investor, understanding your own goals and what you're looking for. So what do you want to get back out? If you're brand new to passive investing, can you get comfortable with the idea of illiquid securities, whether it's our deals or anybody else's deals, real estate syndications are illiquid. When you're invested, you might be in a deal for five to seven years, depending on the business plan and everything like that. And that should all be disclosed in your legal documents. But is that consistent with your investment goals and temperament? Once you check all the boxes in terms of you know, are these types of deals the right fit for me? That's your own personal uh, judgment basis right there. You know, the next step is to get educated on how individual types of deals work. So if you're interested in multifamily investing, specifically value-add multifamily is the conversation we're having today. Read some books around how value-add multifamily investing works. So that'll get you educated on what a preferred return is, how a you know renovation schedule works, what's a cap rate, what's NOI, how what expenses can we think about cutting and which ones are probably not wise to focus on cutting because we negatively affect tenant experience. So get educated on how the deals work before you come to any sponsor out there to evaluate them because- you want to show up to them having already been educated. You don't want to try to get them to educate you for a few reasons. It's not exactly considerate of their time, right? There's a lot of content out there that can educate you. And for two, what if this person you're talking to doesn't have your best interests in mind? They might tell you incorrect information, or maybe they don't even know. They might give you incorrect information because they don't know the right answer. So you're just looking to mitigate your own risks by getting educated and getting educated is not really that expensive to do. Fortunately, a lot of books that cost 
20 to 25 bucks on Amazon. There are a lot of passive investor groups out there that you can network with, you know, so many other things like that. Um, when it comes to vetting teams and individuals on the teams, again, going back to networking with other investors, you can ask about people's reputations. You can, of course, look into background checks on the sponsors. I think that's very often recommended for folks to do, but almost nobody does it, is the honest truth. I think it's a wise thing to do, but people skip out on it. You can do that. Take the time to vet them. Again, background checks, Google their names, listen to them on podcasts. Now, just because they said something on pod, a podcast is not a good indicator, but you know, dig into them. And then kind of the last thing that I would say in that vein is avoid the feeling of missing out. Avoid FOMO because if they're really a great sponsor, they're going to have another deal. Individual deals do have a ticking clock. They will have a close date and they need to get the capital in ahead of time so that they can close on the deal. So decisions decisions need to be made relatively quickly. But if that timeline isn't consistent with your comfort level, your education, you know what you need in order to get to the point where you're ready to commit, then hang back, wait for the next one. Use that as a learning opportunity to continue to grow. I say that because that's what I did when I first got started is I wasn't ready. I continued to get educated and then eventually I was ready and a deal, several deals, honestly, came along once I was ready and boom, I made my decisions. But it takes time. It takes investment of your energy and you know passion to get that education. So those are just a few things that I would you know point folks to. Great advice. All right. Are you ready for a speed round? Yes. What's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? Passive income and passive wealth. And what do you know now about passive real estate investing that you wish you knew when you first got started? How many options there are? Debt, equity, how many sponsors there are. There's just so much out there. Yep. And you mentioned a couple of books, The Intelligent Investor and The Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Are there any other books that you'd recommend to other investors? Sure. So one here on my shelf, Crucial Conversations. This one to me came at a point in my life where I needed better skills to have conversations with others that could be difficult. I was in my mid-20s at the time. Now I'm in my mid-30s, so it was a little while ago. But it's helped me in personal life, business life. Definitely recommend checking out Crucial Conversations. Excellent. How can our listeners get in contact with you if they want to learn more about what you have going on? Sure. Go to investwithtaylor.com or check out the Passive Wealth Strategy Show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Excellent. Is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't already covered yet? I have a free seven-day video course on red flags and passive real estate investing, relatively short bite-sized videos going over seven red flags for passive real estate investors, passiverealestatecourse.com to get that. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you so much, Taylor. It's been great having you on the show. And for you listeners, check him out on the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, and uh, I'll include the links to his stuff on the show notes. So thanks, Taylor, and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. 
If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.